Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Chris. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Chris and KJ are friends who have geeked out over video games, Game of Thrones, and movies for years. In fact, six years ago, for about two years every week, Google Docs were used to choose a movie by an elaborate voting system involving five people with a two-thirds majority vote to choose the movie of the week. Chris, KJ, and their friends have enjoyed show-inspired dishes made by Chris, including Sansa's Lemon Cakes, Dothraki Blood Pies, and the Black Yukon Sucker Punch from Twin Peaks. Chris also conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by KJ. This movie is an action comedy film from Japan called Why Don't You Play in Hell by Shion Stono. Sona was also known for Suicide Club, The Land of Hope, and Tokyo Tribes. In 2013, Why Don't You Play in Hell would have shared theater time with Midsummer's Equation, a police procedural, Doraemon, Nobita's Secret Gadget Museum, and Studio Ghibli's The Wind Rises. KJ, why don't you tell us a little bit about Why Don't You Play in Hell and why you thought this would be a fun one for us to explore this week? Why Don't You Play in Hell starts with a Yakuza gang member attempting to kill Muto-san, who is the leader of another Yakuza gang. Ten years later, the feud starts back up. Ten days before Muto-san's wife is going to be released from prison, Muto-san tells his wife that their daughter is a famous actress and her movie is about to debut. Unfortunately, Muto-san's daughter, Mitsuko, has not been in any movies. Muto-san does not want to disappoint his wife and decides to make a movie so his daughter can star in it. Through some divine intervention, Muto-san hires a young man who dreams of being a director named Hirata. Hirata has been waiting for this chance since he was in high school with three of his best friends. The movie culminates into the two Yakuza gangs fighting while being filmed by Hirata in a bloody, bloody battle that leaves no one standing. So I had mentioned in a previous episode that my wife and I taught English in Japan, and while there, a local community group that reaches out to foreigners had a movie night. That night, we watched Memories of Matsuko, and I realized there were probably lots of movies in other countries that aren't big enough to hit the mainstream in the USA. So on my quest to find smaller movies from other countries, I stumbled upon Why Don't You Play in Hell? And for some reason, this movie struck a chord with me in that I love that it was about making movies. It was an obvious love letters to Japanese cinema as a parody of Yakuza films, samurai films, probably Japanese romantic comedies, But unfortunately, I'm not versed at all in the movie's Why Don't You Play in Hell references, but I loved its cheeky charm and its over-the-top violence. How about you, Tom? Sure. Uh, This is my first experience with the director, Shion Sono, and I watched a few of his movies this week alongside Why Don't You Play in Hell. I I probably find this movie the, the least interesting of the ones I was looking at, and well, I, I watched it twice, and I find, like, after about 75 minutes, the movie begins to have some kind of charm, and, and the whatever the kind of bloody-tooth satire of it starts to come through. 
I had a lot of trouble with the first 75 minutes. Uh, it, it is a, it is like a broken glass. You know, there's, there's just all these kind of plot elements that are thrown at you. And the tone is, is really bonkers and kind of all over the place. That being said, I, I'm glad I saw it and I'm glad I, I got to learn about Sono and uh, his, his different films. Um, because he's he's a really interesting guy and a, and a really interesting filmmaker, and he's definitely worth talking about. How about you, Nick? What did you think? Well, this was an interesting movie, and my thoughts on this movie evolved or changed the further I got into the movie. So I was about 40 minutes in and trying to make sense of all the different characters and, and plot lines, because we still really don't know what's going on at this point. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was the excessive use of blood and some of the ways they jump from scenes into characters. I was like, is this supposed to be like, um, like a, a, a Japanese, like Quentin Tarantino movie? Where, where are we going with this? And at the same time, there's an exchange between my other hosts and, and KJ had very high regards for this movie. In fact, he was saying this is in this, like maybe his top 20 films. And here I am 40 minutes in, not, not seeing what he's seeing. Then the movie continues. I'd say about, two-thirds of the way through i'm starting to understand all the, the characters the moving pieces i'm starting to relate to some of them and at least build some type of connection to what story is trying to unfold here then we get to the end sequences that's when things get really really weird and i get pulled out of this movie i'm trying to enjoy it i'm trying to like be involved but just when i think they can't go any crazier they go crazier and there's a certain point I, i'm sure we'll get into in the conversation they're fighting this sequence, this major battle between the two Yakuza. Then all of a sudden, to get better shots, the cameramen start shooting everybody. That's when I think I started to get pulled out of the movie. Or it might have been the scene where there was just random heads being decapitated and throwing through the roof. So I, I'm not quite sure, but I, my opinions of this movie drastically change if you ask me what time uh, stamp of the movie my opinion is at. And on that note, I'm going to turn it over to our guest, Chris, to see what his thoughts were. Uh, yeah, I have the same thoughts as the two of you. Uh, I watched it twice, actually, and the first time I hated it. I really did not like it. It was really boring. Um, and then after watching the second time, I realized it is Japanese magnolia, right? All these interlinking things, these flashbacks, these flash forwards, these fever dreams. Um, there is a lot in every scene that the guy adds that's really interesting and i think it is one of those like cult movies that you're supposed to watch multiple times but that's annoying all those movies are generally annoying unless you're really into those movies but yeah i mean i liked it but i only liked it the second time the first time was really hard to watch okay i, I think i might have trouble getting to that second time <laughs> to really up my enjoyment but before we go into the rest of the episode uh, we always do ask the guests a critical question and i'm going to ask the same one to you chris what would be the best ideal snack to enjoy while watching Why Don't You Play in Hell? Uh, so I thought about this a lot, and um, there's really no food references in the movie except one guy that gets a face full of, I think, rice or beans. Um, so my only recommendation is just go with something Japanese like okonomiyaki or sushi or something like that. It's time for Movie Quiz. All right, so for round one, we have three categories. Each question will be worth one point. The categories are gnash your teeth hard, let's go, now gnash and gnaw, let's fly, 
and it's like a tingling bite. Chris, which category would you like to start with? Uh, it's like a tingling bite. It's time for question one. What does Muto-san say will impress his wife? Locked in. Locked in. Uh, locked in without knowing the answer. <laughs> okay. Tom, what do you got? He says a screening of a movie starring her daughter. And Nick? It's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, um, a movie starring her, her daughter as the, the lead role. Okay. Uh, point for Tom and Nick. So the whole plot of this movie revolves around this one small thing, which is Muto-san has to impress his wife to make a movie. But when I imagine the writer and the director and those guys making this movie, I imagine they started backwards. I imagine they started, wouldn't it be funny if we had a modern day Yakuza fighting with the samurai from the old samurai films and then work their way backwards to get to that final scene? Yeah, it, it that seems to be what's happening. It seems to be a acknowledgement. I, I don't want to call it a love letter because I'm not entirely sure that... Um, Sono is in the business of writing love letters <laughs> based, you know, just based upon his style and his work. But it, it seems to be an acknowledgement of influence, um, both the influence of this particular cinema, um, Chinese cinema, kind of Kung Fu cinema, whatever, um, influence more generally, more abstractly, and then kind of working, maybe not working backwards, but acknowledging um, how acknowledging the source of influence and then how that influence kind of structures lives or, or affects people. Do you guys think it worked? Do you guys imagine you're sitting around at lunch? Wouldn't it be funny if a movie blah, 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 blah. And then you had to backfill. Do you, do you think the plot worked to get to that end scene? It, it's not so much the plot that I, I had trouble with. The end scene, the last, I think I disagreed with you, Nick, when we, we summed it up in the beginning. Um, I, I found the last 40, 30 minutes of the movie interesting and a lot more enjoyable. I think that's the point where the, the crazy can kind of explode. The fireworks can kind of explode. The lead up to this, the prep to get here is... Uh, kind of, there's so much energy in almost every scene of this movie that by the time you get to the the payoff, you're you're both exhausted by you know the 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 energy the director has and the actors have. The actors are like dialed up to ten in every scene, and also the fact that the movie has so much plot prep that you know that it kind of feels like you're you're dragged out until you get to that. 75 80 minute mark to clarify where the ending sequence changed my mind and my my flow of of my, or my opinion of the movie i actually i did get back invested in the movie when i started making those connections about two-thirds and even to the point where things were coming together where hey we're gonna film this we're gonna make a movie I think the execution of the, literally execution, if you think about it, of everybody, but the actual filming, like once we get into action, I took the first take. I was fine with that. When they come through and they stop fighting, okay, haha, this is fine. Then it just gets to another level. And I was literally sitting there like, what am I watching? So if we go back to KJ's original thought of 
did they successfully do it? I think they made exactly what they intended to make. Does that mean I enjoyed what they intended to make? That's a different topic. That did seem like a, what if we could make a movie that had all these elements? And I think they had a checklist and I think they hit every one and we're saying, hopefully the audience will enjoy this as much as we enjoyed making it. Uh, my question though would be, what do you think his intentions are? Is this homage or is this satire? Right? Is he honoring or is he holding it up for, for maybe not ridicule, but for, you know, um, criticism? Because it doesn't seem like he's, I'm not entirely sure if he's doing either. It's really hard to trace. I generally look at the world through rosy eyes glasses. And um, so I like to believe it was an homage to the old movies, but I think he may have been criticizing the movie industry. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious he's criticizing the movie industry a lot in this movie. I mean, there's the one line where uh, I think Herata says, um, I make movies because I'm passionate about it. Most people today are just trying to make money or something like that. It, it, it didn't work. It didn't connect in the movie. But I think that's one of the things he is criticizing. Yeah, but I, I mean, we also spend a lot of time in learning about these characters and becoming invested in these characters. And, uh, you know, not to spoil it for our, our listeners, but they all die with the exception of of the director the young director they all die and pretty brutally and and in a way that's also kind of comic so uh, you know is this like is this when you build characters and then kind of brutally cut them down in the last minute is this love for the the genre that does this i mean it, this is maybe a little bit of of my problem here i'm not entirely sure his his relationship to his source materials, which he's highlighting constantly. See, I, I take this as Sono is very similar to director Hirata. At all costs, he will do whatever it takes to make what he thinks is a perfect movie. So if you got to kill everyone off, that's the way it's going to be to get the vision. I'm not saying I share that vision, but I, I think that's when I, when I see how crazy and how passionate Parata is at the end when he's all bloody and running away with all the film material, like literally the 35 millimeter film and sound. He's ecstatic. He's done it. He's made his creation. Oh yeah, everyone else got killed, but he made it. And I feel like that's just what Sono was trying to show here. All right. Question two. Uh, the remaining categories are let's go and let's fly. Nick, which category would you like? Let's fly. It's time for Question two. Muto-san hires Koji to direct his movie. Koji is unprepared and has little to no experience directing a movie. According to Koji, the physical film that should be used to shoot the movie is about how wide? Locked in. Locked in. Uh, locked in. All right, Chris, what do you got? Is this a visual answer? Because that's all I remember is about this wide. and <laughs> go down. All the guys go down the line. Nice. Nick? I believe it was about this wide. Was it that? I... <laughs> this is great for an audio. Is it? <laughs> and Tom? I have, I have this wide too. So when we, when we say this wide, Nick and I have our um, kind of thumbed index fingers <laughs> spread out. Wow. And Chris has his arms spread out. 
or his hands spread out. So for our, our home listener. I'm also the only one that watched it twice. What am I doing? <laughs> he was watching it on a bigger TV. That's what it was. That's, yeah. um, I'm going to give the points to everybody because uh, I think you all got the spirit of the question. Although, Chris, I've never seen film that wide as wide as you. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> well, the diameter, right? Maybe the diameter. Um, yeah, so one of the things this movie does is it, is it glorifies 35 millimeter, right? That was the end result of about this wide is to get the 35 millimeter um, film into the film. And it knocks video quite a bit. So I just, I wanted to talk about how upset the people creating the movie seem to feel about modern technology compared to the glory days of film, film. Uh, even that community center that, their club was based out of hadn't they were really in awe of the old projector even the two people who did the handheld it was all about the style of what they could film on actual film so he did seem to have a a a love of the old ways of creating movies yeah i mean there is that kind of glory of the the 35 millimeter um, which is when the, the proposal is given to the director. His name is Hirata. The sales pitch is money's not an ops object and it's on 35 millimeter. And then, you know, that really gets his attention. So it, it seems to be that's what the, the kind of Bruce, the old Bruce Lee films were, were done on. And so that is what, um, that's what equals great cinema is, you know, is, is 35 millimeter. Not a good script, right? <laughs> They're not particularly interested in narrative at all or plot at all, which is interesting because as long as this movie is, the plot is sort of possibly incidental to, to what he's trying to do, which might even be a problem because it makes it a little ambiguous as to what he's trying to do. Yeah, it seems to be a movie about uh, how much this guy loves style, right? Hirata loves style. Well, there's even that that scene just before they're about to shoot the big Yakuza fight where they, they make the joke about sitting down and writing a proper script and all coming together. And and then they go, ah, nope, that didn't happen. We're just shooting this. So I think the movie's very blatant about its disregard for scripts and structure. They actually did have a scene where the female lead, Mitsuko, says that she will not perform without a script. So they're on like a, a beach or something and they're all practicing in white. And the director, Koji, and her are act- actively writing a script. And it is reviewed. They're all like, oh, it looks good. So they, they did some kind of base script just to a- appease their lead actress. Wasn't that a fantasy though? The beach scene didn't happen, right? It was... Uh, I think it was. Hirata's, Hirata's fantasy? Yeah, that was Hirata's fantasy. The, the joke was kind of, we should do this, but we're not. I, I know that. And that's why when I, we started this episode, I said, I'm supposed to be answering questions, but I think I have more questions than answers. And this is definitely one of those gray areas. So you were absolutely right. They didn't have a script, but I wasn't quite sure if there was some kind of semblance of a script. I, I do think the, the beach sequence, so for, for our audience who most definitely hasn't seen this movie, um, uh, there is a, the, this director, this young director who's getting his, his first break with the Yakuza, uh, is having a fantasy of making movies and the fantasy is filmed on a beach. 
where you see the different uh, divisions of filmmaking, this kind of division of labor spread out before you and the, the camera uh, on a dolly, not on a dolly, excuse me, on a track goes past all of them and you kind of record them. And at one point the, the actress is kind of um, embracing the, the archetype of an actress and saying, I won't, I won't film without a script. And so you see them sit down and write a script and it's brilliant, you know, even though their, their movie doesn't have a script, they, they're not even seemingly aware that a movie needs a script. But it does seem to be, again, this is, this is kind of my, my problem and my confusion. I think I'm with you, Nick, in the camp of I have more questions because that seems, seems so kind of... Uh, lovely in the sense of a uh, kind of a young artist looking at movies and imagining not only the perfect movie, but the, the perfect scenario in which one makes movies, this, you know, the, the, the kind of pure form of movie making. And yet the, the movie itself is, I don't, it, it, it exterminates everything. It ends in extermination. And I, you know, I don't, and it also ends in a, there's a lot to say. I'm kind of stuttering, um, but it it ends in extermination and it ends in a fantasy. So for our our, our home listener who <laughs> who probably hasn't seen this movie, the, the the movie ends with the the director, who's the only survivor, getting the reels and getting the sound and and running out and screaming, "I got my movie! I got my movie!" And then he's imagining a fantasy version in which everyone who is now alive and healed. Um, including people who were beheaded and now have, they just have a bandage around their neck <laughs> holding the head on, um, kind of in the theater being applauded. Eventually the, the film ends and it ends with him just sort of covered in blood, screaming, I got my movie. And then you hear cut and the, the, the frame, the fourth wall breaks. And I completely confused as to what I'm supposed to, what tone I'm supposed to take away from this. So to start pulling apart everything you said, um... Number one, I think that beach sequence is exactly that. This is what young people imagine making a movie is like. It's this happy day on the beach. Everyone's wearing white. The sound guys are doing the sound. The script writers are writing the script. I think even in that scene, it starts with them writing a script on a table. The camera only moves to the left and ends with them writing a script on the table as if the table was moved. Like it's just everything just is going to magically happen. You don't have to worry about anything. Then the movie, on the other hand, not in Fantasyland shows that uh, things aren't good, right? Everybody dies, which is a little bit more extreme, I hope, than for most movies. So it shows the mess of making a movie or how movies don't make sense, right? The Yakuza's decisions during this movie, they don't make a lot of sense. We're going to wear kimonos now. There's no reason for them to do that, except we wanted it to look like an old samurai movie. So I think that's one of the things this movie is showing is that the best intentions and and this perfect movie making magic doesn't happen it's actually a miracle that any movie is comes together and is made and they're kind of poking fun at that also that scene at the end where they're in the they're in the theater and they have the bandages around the guy's neck that reminded me of afterlife i figured this was him dying going to the movie afterlife this was the memory he was taking with him and that's, I didn't know if it was literally paying homage to that movie or if that idea exists more in Japanese filmmaking. So I, I, that's how I kind of interpreted that is he did die during that sequence and this was him taking his memory with him. The more we talk about this movie, the more I actually think 
he is mocking mainstream uh, movie production because there are some lines in here where he specifically says, we're not making one of those film industry ones. We're making our own uh, as a, almost like an independent voice. And as I said, the more we go into all these things about comparing his technique or how this movie flows to a traditional movie, I think it's pretty blatant at this point. But he's also a caricature. The guy, Hirata, I'm going to constantly screw the names up. Um, my apologies. Hirata is a, a caricature of a director. And he's the one who's always going, I want to make one masterpiece, not like these other people who do it for money. And yet at the same time, he's, he's absurd. He, you know, he's maybe the most absurd person in the, in the film. And this film is not short on absurdity. I think it goes back to the original point that who knows what this director even is trying to say the entire time. It's such a mess. Um, I'm trying, while he's talking, I was trying to think about the scene when he's with the actual studio directors, I'll call them uh, the original scene that the daughter or the original movie that the daughter was in. And I don't like, you'd think it, at that scene, he would insult them or anything, but, but he almost, he treats them seriously Whereas he, the hero of the film, the director, is insane. And to go back to the last question, I think, I, I'm pretty sure the more I think about it, he's lampooning Japanese cinema uh, in a way that like Tarantino would with a little bit of love. But, uh, but I, think, I think this movie's just a big lampoon, uh, lampoon but it's, it's still just a complete mess and insane, but I still like it. <laughs> Chris, I'm glad you brought up that scene when they go to like the movie within the movie, like the legit movie within a movie. I was shocked that that was the one guy, the director was the one guy who could stand up to the Yakuza boss. He was in charge, not the Yakuza. Everyone else bowed over for Muto, but the director was like, can't do it, not happening. It was insane to me to see that. So that's the only time we've ever seen uh, one of the Yakuza bosses not being on top. It was it was crazy to me. All right. And now for the final question of round one, the category is let's go. It's time for question three. So this is going to be an around the table question. So we are going to name specific titles to Japanese movies that are referenced in Why Don't You Play in Hell? So before you guys lock in, I'll start. I got nothing. Point for everybody. I feel like we're at a disadvantage because we aren't versed in Japanese film. <laughs> I think it would have helped a lot if, if we knew what they were referencing. You know, we're kind of talking around this. We're making guesses. But um, did you guys also feel like you should have had a, a bibliography of movies to draw on while watching this? Are they making references, though? Or is it self-contained? There was one scene um, when they're in the castle and the, uh, the Yakuza, who's led by uh, Ikegami-san, he, and they're all wearing kimonos, and he's kind of below the shelf, and they're talking, and then above the shelf, and they're talking, and below the shelf, and they're talking, and they're going back and forth, back and forth. I, I don't remember exactly which Kurosawa movie it was. It might have been Yojimbo. Um, but I think there's a scene in Yojimbo where he's talking to the to the mayor in the town and he may do something similar just once for dramatic effect. So I, I think there are a lot of specific references. Um, another one I can think of is um, Mitsuko and Koji are under the bridge kind of trying to become boyfriend and girlfriend. 
and the scene doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. It feels really out of place. All of a sudden they're just, and I imagine that's close to line by line for a lot of Japanese romantic comedies. I imagine a lot of Japanese romantic comedies have the scene at night where the water's reflecting off the street and the, the lead male and the lead female are talking about their feelings and what are they going to do. Um, but again, I don't know because I haven't seen these. The one I will say, and it wouldn't answer your question because you said specifically Japanese references, but they keep talking about the one character as the Japanese Bruce Lee. Okay, so if we go to Asian films in general, I'm sure there were a lot of reference to the old Bruce Lee films. And usually I think those scenes would be when they do actually have 35 millimeter footage within this movie. That probably is a direct reference. Yeah, the, the jumpsuits from Game of Death, which is also then the, the parody is sort of or the satire is sort of recycled because um, you then have Kill Bill using that, which is then Kill Bill is referenced in this movie, um, which also has the actor from Kill Bill in it, right? Uh, what's his name? Juan Kunimura? Yeah, June Kunimura. Yeah, he, he, he plays the voice of Boss Tanaka, right? Do we actually see him? Is he at that uh, meeting? In Kill Bill, I thought he's the one who gets his head chopped off by Lucy Liu. Well, that's convenient. Yeah. Because he also got his head chopped off in yeah. this one. He gets his head chopped off here. So you have this situation where um, we're parodying a parody or a, a reference. We're homaging an homage to an homage. <laughs> and this is kind of, uh, yeah, kind of cultural echo that's going on that you know maybe we're not prepared to hear if you have a clearer vision of of what's happening then even if we're not picking up on the the cultural references we could still pick up on you know pick up on the tone or what he's trying to do i mean the thing with tarantino is tarantino is not a, a satirist tarantino is in love with his sources and he's constantly trying to echo them out of out of respect, love, a kind of zany cocaine-addled uh, desire to be one with, with the movies that he watched in the 1970s. And even though a lot of the Tarantino references go over my head or I miss, and I don't exactly know entirely what he's trying to do, I do know he's not condemning them or condemning media more broadly. Um, I don't think he's doing very much, which is kind of my problem with Tarantino, but I, I know what his project is. I, I have a little bit of trouble here because it seems that, that Sono's project is, or Sono himself is much more suspicious of the effect of media on people. And, you know, my, my reference there would be the, the song, The Girl Sings, that has this kind of profound and ruinous effect on so many people's lives. I brought this up in my intro. When I did start watching this movie, I definitely, I haven't seen Kill Bill in a long time, but it definitely gave me a, a Tarantino vibe, except Tarantino is more of homage to those. Whereas this one, I thought it was more for comedic effect originally. And then the movie continued and my mind went in many directions. But the specifically earlier in the film, the reason my mind went in that way, not just the style, but, the way we had excessive use of blood, it was it, Tarantino uses that a lot too, just overly doing the amount of bloodshed. 
and also the way they jump from different characters and, and storylines. That's why earlier in the movie, but as this movie progressed, I think we got more away from that or elevated it even further than Tarantino's version. He's already at another level, and this took what he does and took that to another level. Well, KJ, those were some interesting questions. I can't wait to see what you have for us in round two. We'll be right back after these brief messages. Perfectly Placed is a service where we perfectly place instructions, items, and other things you need to get you through your day. But enough for me. Let's hear from one of our customers. It's me, Mario, and I'm being paid to promote the Perfectly Placed. I was saving the princess from another castle, and this Goomba comes out of nowhere. Oh no! Now I'm just a small Mario. What should I do? Scrolling right along the bottom of the screen comes exactly what I need. It's a mushroom for Mario. Thanks, a Perfectly Placed, for the Perfectly Placed mushroom. Now I can reach the warp to save the princess. Perfectly Placed. We get around to reminding you what you'll get around to. And we're back. KJ, turning it right back over to you for the next round. All right. In round one, lots of points were distributed. We got Tom and Nick tied at three, and Chris has two points. So we're moving into round two. In this round, we're going to have two questions worth two points each, so it's anybody's game. The two categories are... Gaga Gato Gigi as well as keep them shiny and clean. Tom, what would you like to start with? Gaga Gaga Gigi. It's time for question four. So for this question, we're going to go around the table. Name all the times the jingle was sang in the movie. Let's start with you, Nick. Okay, I'm going to go with the, the gimme. The opening sequence, we start with a commercial. And at that time, I did not know if that was a commercial that just happened to be in front of the movie. And then I realized it's a critical element to the film going forward. So the intro commercial. Uh, well, my favorite character in the whole movie uh, repeats it like a dozen times. Ikegame, uh, he, standing in front of the poster that he has of this girl that he's worshipped for 10 years. Um, he keeps repeating it and going to these fever dreams. Yes. So yeah, Ikegami sings it in his castle um, very awkwardly in front of a giant poster of Mitsuko. Tom? We see her singing it again as a little girl on the blood floor in front of Ikegami. Yes, we do. Another creepy time that's saying. Nick? The young Koji is listening to it and he gets really puzzled when somebody, or, or bashful when somebody implies that that is his girlfriend. Uh, one of my other favorite scenes is when she sings it as she's putting glass into the guy's mouth for the kiss of glass or death or whatever. Tough scene, so tough scene. Oh. Yeah, yeah, ugh. Yeah, and they're talking about the teeth and the, yep. Mm -hmm. Tom? We hear it again in Ikigami in his fantasy later on after he's moved into the castle, it is not so much sung as recited as advice. The mother, I don't recall her name, but Muto's wife, when, she is, when Muto is visiting her in jail, she's singing the song Between the Glass. Yes, yep. Very excited about her daughter. That song to her is her daughter. And she's singing it. Chris? 
I think Nick took the last one I had. Uh, yeah, I'm out. All right, Tom? When the mother is first put in prison, not only do we see her sing the song when she's alone, but she does the dance. All right, so we got Nick and Tom are still going. Nick, you got any more? There's an, a scene with Mitsuko is older and meets Koji. She says it. He says, "Are you know?" He he actually says it to her, knowing who she is. He doesn't find out until the glass scene, right? He sings it to her when they're in like the subway, and he gives her back the money. Right. Yeah. Wow. When they're under that tunnel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Tom. Mitsuki Muto. She sings it when they're prepping the um, they're prepping to make the movie. Yes. Uh huh. When she sees Ikigame son. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, she sings it to him, but kind of like, let's do this, you yep, know. Yep. But that's that's the thing that convinces him. All right, Nick, you got any more? We're still tied. When they recreate the scene later in the movie where uh, Ikigami is bleeding and dying, and she slides through the the blood, I'm pretty sure he says it in that sequence. Yes, that is another time. That is another. Yep. When they recreate it. Yep. And I got one more on my list, Tom. I don't know if you can pull any others out. The young or the um, adult Mitsuko Moto sings it on the phone to, I think she sings it on the phone to, to her father. She sings it on the phone, but I can't remember to whom. Super close. Uh, Hirata sings it on the phone to Ikegami to convince him to make the movie. Ah, uh, Okay. All right, close one, Tom. All right, points to Nick. Two points for Nick. But yeah, yeah. So I, another thing I loved about this movie is that ad, right from the beginning, I think defines how silly this movie is going to be. And they, like you said, Nick, they use it throughout the film. It's kind of the the heartbeat of the film is that ad. Yeah, it's it's very strange, and I, I think it's also what the the kind of the meaning or the translation of the movie is hinging upon because there's one thing to kind of celebrate uh samurai movies that you loved as a child and 35 millimeter but the profound effect this jingle for toothpaste has so for our our listeners there's this um the movie opens with the child uh mitsuko who is doing an advertisement for newspapers and there's a jingle and the jingle is very popular. And when her mother is arrested for butchering like six people, they, they pull the jingle, but this jingle is repeated throughout and has this kind of hypnotic effect on people when they hear it. No one's like, Oh, that's a, that's a commercial jingle. So what? Thank you, Barry Manilow. They're, They're instead like, transformed by this, including leaders of the Yakuza mob family. Um, and families, both. Yeah, yeah, and and so Ikiyama, who is one of the the leaders of the of the Akuza, is uh, is transformed by this jingle. He actually has a picture of the the singer as an adult on his wall in his castle. He fantasizes about her. He's been fantasizing about her since she was a child, and he first met her. Um, and it seems like. That the director is doing something more than celebrating homage in this movie when considering what that jingle does to people. I think most of the time in the movie that jingle's being used to kind of mock nostalgia. 
most of the characters seem to all of a sudden be in a time where that jingle was on. They, they, they seem to be remembering a happier time. I, at least that's the interpretation I got whenever they hear it. it. It reminds them of something happy from either their childhood or from a, a happier time. Whereas for Ikegami, he had this extremely traumatic experience where he went and tried to kill Muto-san, but uh, Muto-san's wife, uh, Shizue, brutally murders the five guys he came with and leaves him for dead. And then the girl from that jingle shows up and sings it to him. So, so I also think he associates it with that trauma and has been trying to deal with that for most of his life. He also uses the, the jingle as a motivation device. Cause she says, get up and go gnash your teeth and go. Yeah. And I was going to say that it's, it's the happy thought. Whenever someone has to think of a happy time, I'm going to get out of jail. Uh, I'm going to fight this other group and we're going to survive and, and, or I'm injured and I'm going to survive. It's, it's that happy thought. And to be quite honest, I think that they did like wonderful casting for that because it was quite catchy. And that little, it was a cute little girl doing this whole routine and, and it's bubbly and it gets in your head. So like they, even if it, they didn't reinforce it, I think it still would be in our head. Like it's one of those type tunes. The other thing I wanted to bring up because it made me think of it while you guys were talking about this is all of the main women characters are actually very strong characters. So Shizue took on these Yakuza hitmen and the daughter slid through blood as a little kid and was like, get out of my house. And then later, she's, she's a badass, let's be quite honest, through this whole thing. So I thought that was interesting that with all these so-called tough guys in Yakuza, sometimes they seem more the comical role and the, the, the main women were very, very fierce, strong uh, characters to contend with. Do you remember why she killed those uh, Yakuza guys? She had just gotten replaced by her husband for a younger woman. <laughs> yes, that's right. I had to think about that. Crazy. He, he, I don't think he, re, he doesn't replace her, right? He has kind of like a geisha woman. I, I, I think it's, it's his, it's his mistress. His mistress. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And he replaces his mistress every five years yeah, by letting but, them run that bar. Oh, so it's what, I'm sorry. His wife's not right. being, no, uh, no. And later when the wife's coming back, um, the, the mistress goes, your wife is coming back. I'm stepping aside. To Chris's point, uh, I don't know how happy the marriage is, but there is definitely a, a hierarchy uh, in which Muto has companions. So if you remember back in the scene where the supposed director Koji uh, was talking to Muto about film budgets and Muto was explaining, do you want the breakfast budget, or the lunch budget or the dinner budget? And he was explaining that breakfast he has with his companion uh, lunch he has with his mistress, but dinner is only for his wife. And he would expect a, a lot of input then. So he pretty much intimidated Koji into choosing breakfast. But the reason I brought that up is I, I'm not sure how much the wife was aware of her husband's dealings, but there could there may have been a connection to her extra rage because she knows that this cycle happens every 10 years where he switches up the ranks a little bit. All right. And the final question today will be subjective. It'll be worth two points. And the category is keep them shiny and clean. It's time for 
Question five. Using just the context of the movie, which character do you think the people making the movie most wanted to be? Locked in. Locked in. Go with locked in. All right. Nick, what do you got? This is a very over-the-top movie filled with a bunch of over-the-top characters. But one of the ones that is always yelling, always screaming, always eccentric and passionate about his project would be director Hirata. No matter what the cause, no matter if you got to wait 10 years or, or even say that you'll give your life to make this perfect movie, you're going to give it your all. And I think that is where they shared their vision through that character to make the movie that they were thinking. He is the one that made the vision come to reality. And I think they put all their effort into him uh, when it comes to just that energy. He never has a down moment. He is always energized. And this film, there may be very small down moments, but is always full of energy. That you can say, it's always full of energy. I'm going to say also uh, director Hirata. I, I think the, my reason is it's a little muffled because I think that they want to be him because of the enthusiasm he has for the movies that I feel the director Sono has, has lost a little bit, right? That he's a director, he's more worldly at this point. He knows the difficulties of, of the movie industry and kind of the problem with with recycled media. Um, and I, I almost get the impression a lot of times that he wishes that he could have that type of enthusiasm again. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the obvious answer is that the director um, is Hirata. But I think if you look at how much uh, life is in all of the characters, I think if you did a biography of the director, I would, there's probably little bits of his friends in all of these different, like they're like an action team, these F bombers. Um, and it's, it's really amazing. I love it. Cool. All right. Well, that makes handing out points pretty easy since you all came up with the same answers. So we're going to go two points to everybody. Um, yeah, he may have, the people making the movie may have wanted to be Hirata. Um, but I, I also kind of think they may have been Hirata and, um, you know, there, there was the guy they met early on in the movie in that, um, community center when they go to watch one of the movies, there's an old man in that cinema. And I, I really think that he was held in very high regards. I think that they, they, they kind of said, look, these were the old guys making the movies and they really did it right because they were using the correct technology and they were, they were doing it out of passion. They weren't doing it for money, right? There, there's this blind um, glorification of how movies used to be made. So I, I, I would point to that guy, but um, Herata is also a very good answer. How do you feel about how this movie placed importance on people? I know, Nick, you had said before the actual director of the movie was one of the few people that could stand up to Muto-san. But there's another scene where Muto-san's kind of going upstairs and people are shooting at him. And he just casually walks in and shoots them. He could not be shot by the lesser Yakuza people. I feel like this movie often gives people plot armor to use a, an overused word. But everybody seems to have an importance and if you're above somebody, you win no matter what. And if you're below somebody, you don't until the very last scene where everybody dies. 
I think they did that almost for comedic effect too, though. Again, going to my lack of vocabulary here is over the top. It just, this guy's going to walk in. We've seen these movies before where the boss can't be touched and they just really went overboard to show us that he is untouchable. Unless you bring swords in the mix, then he can get his head chopped off. But all these hierarchies are established. They're established pretty firmly and they all fall apart in the end. In the end, everybody just dies, right? Everybody, you know, there's, there's a lot of energy, for example, put into preserving Koji. Okay, who is, uh, for our audience, he was just some random guy that the female lead picked up in order to guard herself. And um, he gets pulled into this and uh, they're just going to kill him because they think he slept with the boss's daughter, which he didn't do. He's an entire innocent. And there's a lot of um, energy that's put into the movie to prevent him from dying. And then we get to the end and he just dies. You know, he, he dies kind of gloriously, maybe. But, the, you know, the movie, the movie ends kind of nihilistically. Everybody gets chopped apart. And so all of this energy in which, you know, like you're saying, KJ, the plot armor, all of this plot armor is is established and then just ripped away all of a sudden. So I, so I disagree, Tom. I, I think everything you said is right, except I think that hierarchy holds true all the way to the last frame of the movie. And the movie is above everybody else. That's why the movie was the only thing to survive the movie. The movie had to kill everybody else because movies are more important than the directors, the actors, the scriptwriters, the sound guy, the Kojis, the Ikegamis. Everybody else is less important than the movie. And I think that's the movie's final touch, the final message for everybody. The movie is everything. Eventually, we are in a movie, right? I mean, we're watching a movie and then you hear the last thing they say is, and cut, you know, and cut. Um, and then you see like some extras walking out or, or whatnot. Uh, and, and so it's ultimately all is media. We're all just kind of in this, in this world. We're in this, we, we, KJ and I talked about this off offline a little bit. And, um, you know, K KJ suggested that this is kind of a hyper reality, right? A, a non-real reality made out of media. And I, at first I was, wasn't sure, but I think that's probably the case that uh, in the end, we're just sort of um, living in movies, or at least that's what this movie suggested. All right. Final tallies for this round is Chris with four points, Tom with five points, and Nick takes the crown with seven. Congratulations, Nick. I think this is a shock to us all that I won this movie of all movies, but thank you. Well, on that note, we're going to take another quick break before we jump back into Movie Rant because there's a lot to talk about with this one. See you soon. Flair. Every guy's got to have it. If you're walking into a restaurant to sit down with a hot date, you better stand out. Silk ties and pocket squares just don't cut it. Driving up to a valet in a Lamborghini. Whatever. Who hasn't done that? For the right girl stand out. That's why whenever I want to impress a gorgeous lady, I always wear a select screaming lapel pin. A screaming lapel pin attaches onto the label of your jacket, just like any other lapel pin. However, the screaming lapel pin will also admit a loud, constant yell for as long as the pin is in place. Your lady won't be able to take her eyes off you as your golden fleur-de-lis screams unstoppingly. Want to make a splash in the bar scene? 
peacock like a master, as you stroll through the hottest night spot with a pearl lapel pin howling nonsensical noise from your best jacket. Or, if you have a job interview, you just need to make sure your brown felt flower lapel pin is fastened tight. And also screaming. You're bound to be the talk of the water cooler. Pick up a screaming lapel pin today. Screaming lapel pins. And we're back. Time to rant about this movie. It's time for Movie Rant. I I do have, uh, I still want to go back to that jingle because I don't think we finished that conversation that we started in. The the jingle for me is the, the kind of the meaning or the, the the attitude the director has towards media seems to be wrapped up in that jingle because it it isn't movie right it isn't cinema writ large which seems to be what this movie is about it's a movie about movies it's media and it's advertisement and it's commercial um, and it is it is having the effect on people much in the way that the Bruce Lee cinema of the 70s is having on our F-bomber filmmakers. Um, And I was wondering kind of what people thought of that or how that shaped the tone or attitude of this picture. The one thing that comes to mind with the jingle is while it tends to be very popular and catchy and everyone can like recall or recite it, they still make notes in the movie that it's only an advertisement. Mitsuko needs to be the star in a full-length film to actually prove and be worthy. So even though it was, by our standards, a great accomplishment, I mean, 10 years later, people are still remembering a commercial. That says something. It still wasn't good enough. So I think it goes back towards how their passion is to make a, a solid feature film and even going into the standard media industry, you know, whether it's full length feature films or how the commercialized industry works, we got to get back to the art. That's what matters. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, it's so, uh, it, it kind of destroys lives almost. Right. I mean, what's his name completely changes. Uh, Ikigami, the the leader of the opposing Ikuza, he he is obsessed with this woman by virtue of a of a jingle, isn't he? Yeah, it's true. It's true. No, it, yeah, you know, he's he's yeah, and he yeah, like he changes his his wardrobe. Um, you know, he sees this as he's mapped the jingle onto his own life. So when she goes like, um, you know get up and go and you know thumbs up thumbs up and smile you know he that's his his kind of rallying cry to get up and smile and go and and do what needs to be done um we see the mother kind of tearfully dancing the jingle dance in prison which we mentioned before uh and you know her her life is ruined because her daughter's jingle will will no longer play and the daughter never dismisses the jingle she's never like ah oh, that was so tiring or something she's proud of it she'll sing it again um happily i mean she wants to she wants to advance she likes being this this celebrity i mean who wouldn't um except actual celebrities and it opens the movie right and and it seems to be the 
the comment the director's making or whatnot, that this, this kind of production or this kind of media is doing something and it's leading to these, these bloodbaths or these disasters. I took it as that's an example of showing just because something is mainstream or popular doesn't make it better because they're always trying to say that a solid film is better than the trash that is mass produced out there. So I, I just thought that's how I took it, that that was a common reinforcement that this is what you're getting with, getting in society, but we want to do something better. And finally, at the end of this film, we finally got to what the ideal was, according to them. I'm not agreeing with this, but according to them. Yeah, and on the one hand, you have the ad, which is small, simple, and catchy. And on the other hand, you have everybody's dream of the the big cinema movie on 35 millimeter. That's Hirata's dream. That's uh, Mitsuko's dream. Therefore, it's Muto-san's dream. So I, I do think that ad gives you a, a starting spot so that the big movies feel even bigger and greater, even though it's never really achieved in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's hard, though. It's hard to see. I think what's what's holding me back from um, we need to move beyond commercial media to to the real art is just the the bloodbath of it, the, the brutality of it. Um, it. It seems like that's what he wanted. He wanted that real grit. Yeah, but it, I mean, there's a difference between like getting what you want and killing everyone to get what you want, right? I mean, at, at a certain point, that's that's kind of a problem. Well, this movie's a problem. <laughs> Does that represent the movie industry? Um, and, you know, we, we're, we're based in the U.S., so we think of Hollywood, and I'm, I'm not too familiar with the Japanese movie industry, but it, it might be more terrible or not as terrible as our industry in terms of becoming an actor, becoming an actress, becoming a director, you know, the dream of going to L.A. and doing it, whatever the equivalent of that in Japan is that what the bloodbath was representing? This is what happens if you do try to get involved with the cinema system. Maybe. Uh, this is where maybe a little lost. And maybe it is a, a cultural translation that's not happening for us. So there's one point in the movie where um, they're discussing how the movie's going to be made, how the actual battle's going to be shot, and you see a version of it that doesn't actually happen. And it's all within, um, to, to use KJ's term, it's all within... Uh, Hirata's headcanon, uh, you know, there's, we see the movie, and in his headcanon, the leader of the Yakuza is looking around and going, everybody's terrible on screen, they're so stiff, and he goes, we're realists, and they're fantasists, <laughs> you know, they collapse with style, and that's how he's defeated in, in director Hirata's headcanon, is that they're just too realistic when this great fantastical element can be there with stylistic death and all that. And I'm wondering how that kind of factors into this, this question or complication that we're having with this movie. When I saw that scene, I think that was his catalyst for saying we need to get the other parties involved. Because if we just come in here, it's going to be one-sided bloodbath and it won't be entertaining. So the only way to get it more entertaining is to get the other Yakuza fighters in on the action, in on uh, what's going to be filmed, get their blessing, and then you'll have a more spectacular performance. I, I think it's um, style defeating practicalism. And, and I think that that's what Ikigami is saying is 
in this fantasy that didn't happen and has really nothing to do with the movie. Therefore, um, he he realizes that it's the spectacle that people are here for, not the actual fight or not the actual death, not the actual victors or losers. It's how it happened. And in that scene, it literally whoever does it better, whoever does the how better wins the fight instead of who actually fights better. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And I think that's how the director sees things. That's art for him is the uh, s- supplementing realism for fantasticalism or, or theatricalism. But I think pointing it out in the middle of a movie, then it kind of becomes a bit of a joke, especially in this movie where there's so much I mean, style might be too strong of a word or, or not the right word. Style can be anything where, where there's so much over the top violence um, and there there's... There's so many things happen that that you you kind of pull back from, like the the glass kiss we were talking about, or the quantity of blood in that first scene where she goes sliding across the floor. The fact that sliding across the floor doesn't work that way, but she still had to slide all the way across the floor. Like so that those kind of things aren't practical, but they catch your eye and make you want to keep watching the movie, or at least make me want to keep watching the movie. I think that scene is the first time I even got like Tarantino in my brain because he does that a lot. And in Django Unchained, there's a lot of scenes where they're not obeying the laws of physics. So he shoots someone and they fling completely sideways in a different direction. So that was the first thing I was like, physics do not matter in this universe. Right. I, I agree with that. And I think that you know, physics don't matter in this universe. Fantasy is better than realism. Spectacle is better than, than grounding it in uh, a recognizable reality. And I think that is what director Hirata feels. And I think it's like a lot of what his, his F-bombers feel. It's, it's not what a lot of them, it's what all of them feel. I'm not sure how I parse that with what the movie is doing in a broader way. Because I, I think it is a joke. I think it, we're, you know, we're supposed to kind of laugh at that scene. We're supposed to you know, laugh kind of at and kind of with Hirata. But the movie is brutal and it is over the top and good guys and bad guys all die. I, it's just, it seems hard for me to accept this movie as, um, as, as a love letter, right? As a kind of embracing of these, these trends or these dramas. It just, like if I was gonna call this movie any, uh, give this movie a genre title, I'd call it screwball nihilism, right? It seems to be a, a, a kind of, of, I don't know, an extermination of this style, even as it's highlighting the style's elements. And I don't quite know why or what that's doing. So, so Tom, I think maybe one of the things we should do on Talking Pictures Trivia is maybe introduce uh, a straight Yakuza film or a straight samurai film. Some of the films, maybe we just need to be more versed in some of the references that Why Don't You Play in Hell was, was referencing. Um, like the scene with all the limbs coming flying up. There may be one famous movie out there where there's one famous limb that flies up and they were just turning the dial up on these individual so let's let's assume that, right? There's a movie, it's called Jane the Karate Person, I, you know, whatever, and, and say that that's what they're satirizing, right? Or they're parodying, or they're homaging. 
what are we supposed to do with that? Right. Let's imagine we have that cultural knowledge, right? What is, what are they doing with that cultural knowledge? That's, that's what I'm confused by. I think we're just supposed to enjoy the ride. I, I don't think it's too dissimilar. I mean, uh, from, from space balls, right? If you had never seen a star Wars or a star Trek or an aliens movie and you're like, why are they doing these things? I, I, some of it would still be funny, just like so, a lot of why don't you play in hell is still funny. But without those references, you miss some of it. Can we talk about that end sequence in a little bit more detail? Because that's when I saw this movie, that's the one thing I wanted to bring up with you guys to get your thoughts on it. Because that element of the movie, I was on board finally again after two thirds of the movie. And it went crazy. I liked it up to the point where there were sword fights, but then it went to another level. What do you, what do you guys think about that whole scene? So Nick, I, I think that last scene where the F-bombers grab guns, right? Guns are introduced and they basically massacre everybody. Machine guns. Yeah, machine guns. The guy on the dolly is ramboing down everybody. The handheld is going person by person. I still think that's the movie having to kill everybody because the movie can be the only thing that survives on this hierarchy. And I think they, again, they started at the end and said, how can we accomplish that? What kind of a scene do we need to kill everybody? And that's what they came up with. Yeah, I, I, t- I understood this movie really glorifies being over the top, but that just took it to the next level and really took me out of it. I literally was sitting here and saying like, what am I watching <laughs> at that point? I, I was like, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to buy into what you're selling. And I'm working hard. I'm like, I'll, I'll excuse this. I'll, I'll understand that. Characters are getting together. We get to the end. It, it just got too, too crazy for me. And, and the difference between some of those other uh, comedies we were talking about, we know we're in on the joke there. I don't know if this was a, a language or cultural barrier, but I didn't know if I was supposed to be in on the joke throughout this whole movie. To what you're saying about the ending, I, you know, I, I really like the ending a lot more, I think, than you did, Nick. And I actually, I think I had the reverse response to your thing i the the first 70 or 75 minutes i just found like a lot of plot a lot of plotting a lot of kind of the, the energy was so zany but undirected that um you know like when you you're with the f-bombers they're just jumping up and down they're so excited they're filming everything there's kind of you know gore scenes there's bloody scenes there's these kids who are who have you know more energy than anyone ever um and there's just a lot of plot. There's just a lot of kind of laying, putting up the pieces, putting up the bowling pins, so to speak, for the for the ball in that last sequence. And so while I was confused about what the ending was doing, I did enjoy watching the pins get knocked down. If I had to sum up key enjoyment time of this movie, it was when Koji and Mitsuko are with... Muto, and it's the only way to save him is for him to direct the movie. Up to the point where director Harata yells cut after the first sequence of fighting with the swords. That was pivotal key enjoyment. You mean when the power goes out? Oh yes, 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 yes. Because that was the first fight sequence. So that is the part I enjoyed the most because I'm like, I understand these characters and I understand what's about to happen. And this opening to this movie thing is kind of cool. And then it lost. Well, I think too, the, the, the end sequence where they're mowing everybody down, that's the movie mowing down the actors. That's the movie mowing down the director 
mowing down the sound producer. It's kind of the opposite of that beach scene, right? That beach scene, you're seeing all of them happy and setting up a movie. That's the movie destroying the movie industry and everybody that makes up the movie, just being more important than any of the individual parts. I was going to say, there's an expression I have uh, that I use at work sometimes when, I, uh, when I'm working on something for too long and I just say, just shoot the engineer and ship the thing. Maybe this is the director saying, just shoot all the actors and finish the movie. It's going on for way too long, which it did go on for way too long. I think that's well put. <laughs> I think what, one of my, my favorite parts is um, at night and you start to see the, the camaraderie between the groups and the, uh, the, the new director comes out and uh, he thanks everyone for their sacrifice, you know, and, and Moto-san is saying like, we're gonna fight the Yakuza tonight. They might die. Actually, many of them will die. And direct, the director goes, I sincerely thank you for your sacrifice. And at that point, it went from this kind of frustrating uh, uh, hodgepodge of scenes to really being kind of genuinely funny, and, um, you know, you'll, you'll also see um, like Motosun listening to the director or having disagreements with the director that weren't making him into a monster anymore. That, it, you know, that's when it got into this kind of like screwball thing that really was enjoyable. Well, while we may have had difference of opinions regarding this movie, it definitely led to some great conversations. I'd like to congratulate myself in the most humble way possible for winning this episode. Thanks again, Chris, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Of course. And I'd also like to thank our amazing editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. We'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Tom's recommendation from 1919, Broken Blossoms. Should be interesting. A first watch for me. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.